I have rich memories of being a boy, lounging on the couch, uh, reading a book while my mom would quilt. My mom is a quilter, spent hours and hours of my life reading and talking to her while she would sew. And in my head, when I remember those days, the soundtrack that plays, what I hear in my mind is the sound of music. Uh, Mommy's Sound of Music album, it seemed like, was being played all the time. It was the ubiquitous music in the sewing room. How many of you know and enjoy the Sound of Music, the songs from it? Okay, that's a lot of hands. I wanted to be certain. I got to tell you a little something behind the curtain here. First hour, I was, before first hour, I was talking to the Lord about, Lord, thank you that I'm going to start with the sound of music, and it's so ubiquitous, it's so widespread in world understanding that, and I was think, praying for particular people that are worship in the first service, and there's a guy who comes early every week, and he sits in the, in the prayer hall, and he reads his Bible in Arabic. That's his first language. And then there's a couple from India, and there's a couple from Mexico, and another one from the Philippines, and I was like, Lord, thank you that they're all going to, and, and so I kind of watched them, right? So I got up and I said this about Sound of Music, and they all nodded their heads and smiled. Then a guy walked up who was born in Texas and lived all his life in Texas, walked out of service, and said, yeah, I didn't get that at all. I've never seen the Sound of Music. I was like, what? You live in Texas. He said, I was raised by a single dad. We didn't watch girl shows. And I was like, that's not a girly show. Anyway, I hope you will understand. Uh, If you know any of the songs from the Sound of Music, you may know this one, the Do Re Mi song. Uh, sing it with me if you know it. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with, when you sing, you begin with, do, re, mi, do, re, mi, the first three. All right, the reason I had you sing that is if Rogers and Hammerstein had been born 2,000 years earlier, I am convinced that is how Jesus would have started the greatest ethical teaching of all time, his Sermon on the Mount. He would have said, let's start at the very beginning, because that's exactly what he does. He starts with the most important point first. Open your Bible, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up the Beatitudes, starting in verse 2. Then he began to teach them, saying, the poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. As we point out in our notes, um, you got a bulletin when you came in. Look inside at the notes. As we point out in our bulletin, one must start here. This is the very beginning. This is the prerequisite for a relationship with God. This is logical, inescapable, and incredibly important. Just think, think, if I don't recognize my poverty of spirit, I cannot deal realistically with life. I must start here. Suppose you and I have just run up a very high hill. Okay, so really, I mean really high hill, and we've gotten to the top, and we're understandably out of breath, right? Does it do any good to pretend that we have lots of wind and that we're fine and we can converse and sure answer questions? No, because the minute we open our mouths, right, we've got no air. That is exactly the image Jesus uses here in verse 3. Look, toikos, he says, toikos numa. Toachos pneuma, for poor in spirit. Toachos is a common term. It means having very little or nothing of something. Pneuma is translated spirit, and that's appropriate. However, the base meaning of pneuma in Greek is, is wind or breath. And pneuma never loses the meaning of breath. It only means spirit by extension. Jesus is simply stating the facts. We humans are empty of, of wind, of spirit. Only God gives us pneuma. 
Start at the very beginning. Go back. When God, in the very beginning, formed the human, what, what did he do? What did he breathe into that human? <sighs> the breath of life. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the pneuma of life. God gives us breath. But we try to pretend otherwise. We like to blabber and blather on about our prowess, our self-creation, our evolution. And sometimes that fools people. Uh, people don't notice that we're truly empty. In fact, in fact, and this is weird, the populace of the world often responds positively to blustery pretense, but we never hoodwink God. You never fool him. He knows we are tochos numa. This is why the first aspect of Jesus' good news demands that a person recognize their need. We must repent. We must change our minds. We must see the truth about our own sinfulness and God's separate holiness. Only then is the human ready to accept the good news that God's love amazingly reached all the way across our sin, providing a way of life in Jesus. To get here, a relationship with the triune God by his grace, one must step out here in faith. Trusting Jesus. And no one, folks, no one trusts in Jesus until they recognize that, that they need him. That they are empty of spirit and breath. That's why Jesus says, start here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And this blessing is not just for those who are becoming new believers in Jesus. It is the prerequisite for each and every day of the Christian life. This is why the great teacher, the late great Jerry Bridges said this, Christians, those of you who believed on Jesus, must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We must start by remembering that it is God's breath in our lungs. We who are blessed by God's grace through faith in Jesus do very well to remember that our unbelievably rich citizenship guaranteed for us in the kingdom of heaven began with a recognition of our abject poverty of spirit. So before we go any further, let's make sure that we're starting rightly, shall we? Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Please forgive our incredible foolishness that we actually think that it is our breath in our lungs. Forgive our pride, our sinfulness, our foolishness, and let us breathe by your grace. Remind us, let us preach the gospel to ourselves that this life only exists for us, this wonderful Christian life, because we recognize, thank you, we recognize that we need Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anybody studying with me, wherever they may be, here or elsewhere, that has never, never recognized the blessing of knowing they're poor in spirit. Open their eyes right now. Friend, listen, you are a sinner, period. And God is separate from you because he's holy. And yet he loves you so much. That he made a way. We use that illustration of the cross bridge for a reason. Jesus, fully God, fully human, came to earth to die on that cross. To give his life as the sacrifice to pay the price for our sin. A price you and I could never pay. No one could ever pay. And then he rose from the dead so that everyone who steps out and trusts him has everlasting life. We move from everlasting death to everlasting life. Trust him right now. Just talk to God and say, I, I am poor in spirit. 
And I thank you for making a way for me in Jesus. I trust him. I receive the gift of Jesus. If you're here and you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand. Let me rejoice with you. Good for you. Amen. Father, I ask you to encourage every one of us that we might understand and live out the blessing of being poor in spirit. All God's people said, amen. All right, let's read some more Beatitudes. Go back to verse 3. The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Now remember, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus revealing his great ethic. And in the Beatitudes, he shares the practice of his ethic, the practice of the new life. This is the foundation of Jesus' ethos. Of course, there is one question we need to answer before we can proceed any further. Little Gretel from The Sound of Music is asking, Fräulein Maria, why are they called Beatitudes? Great question, Gretel. Thank you so much for asking. It's because it's really simple. In the Latin Bible, the Latin translation of the Bible, every one of these sentences of Jesus begins with the word beati. That's just how the words go in, in Latin. Uh, beati is a Roman word for happy or blessed. That's why they became known as the beatitudes. But the real life-changing information is found in the original Greek word we translate blessed. Because from this Greek term, we learn that blessing is authentic spirituality that is already provided by God. Let, let me show you. The adjective in question, look up here. The adjective in question is makarios. Makarios, a really wonderful, important word. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. You get to say makarios on the count of three. One, two, three, makarios. It's a poetic term. It means blessed or highly favored. But modern Western thinkers, listen, modern Western thinkers tend to read makarios wrongly. You see, we look at these Beatitudes, and, and the way it, it, it's okay, it's just the way it comes out in our language, this looks like a performance reward formula. That's how it looks. If one does this, one gets that reward. A, a mourner, for example, will earn the blessing of comfort. That is not at all what makarios means. That's not the blessing. There are Greek terms for blessings that are earned, but makarios is the opposite of that. Makarios means a blessing or a favor that is part and parcel of a person's state of being. That, that's why Homer uses makarios to describe how the gods in his Greek pantheon enjoy the benefits of being gods. Pindar, another Greek writer, uses makarios to depict how happy human beings can be just as part and parcel of being human. Makarios means we enjoy the benefits of our state of being. It's part and parcel of the whole deal of being Christians. Look, <clears throat> the comedian Moody McCarthy he may not know anything about Greek language, but I think he nails Makarios in this part of his routine. Take a look and listen to Moody McCarthy. And my wife's getting a little crazy with her diet. I'm getting worried about it. She gets on the internet. She's always looking for the next trend, you know? But she doesn't challenge anything. Here's what she told me one time. She goes, hey, we're not supposed to be drinking milk as adults because we're the only species that does that. I go, hon, we're the only species that can milk cows. That's part of the puzzle. <laughs> Squirrels would love to have some ice cream from time to time. But they're undisciplined. <laughs> 
Makarios means we get to enjoy the benefits of our state of being. Benefits like ice cream. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Bailey is an expert in the cultural and linguistic background of the New Testament. Uh, Look at his statement in our notes. Uh, Bailey says this, The presence of Makarios in the Beatitudes makes a great difference. As a group, the Beatitudes do not mean, Blessed are the people who do X because they'll receive Y. Instead, they should be read with the sense, look at the authentic spirituality and joy of these people who have or will be given X. That's why we said that blessing is authentic spirituality that is already present. If you trust Messiah Jesus, you are blessed, Makarios, because of all you have in him, all that you enjoy in your state of being. Friedrich Hauck, the, uh, the brilliant German uh, theologian, he put it this way. He says, the special feature of Makarios in the New Testament is that it refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive religious joy which accrues to man from his share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. Close quote. Rogers and Hammerstein would probably say that the Beatitudes are a list of our favorite things. I simply remember my favorite Beatitudes, and then I don't... Now, read verse 4 again. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. Remember, this is not something that's earned. Makarios describes the happy delight of something that's already part of one's state. Therefore, this verse is describing how lament, which is a real part of life this side of heaven, lament relishes in presence. Being comforted implies the presence of a comforter. As I was writing this message, I was typing on this message, I walked out of my office to go get some more water, and I saw one of our pastors crying with somebody who had just lost a loved one to cancer. Those who believe in Jesus have that kind of comfort. We, we have our fellowship group, and we possess the blessing of people who comfort. Of course, the most important comforter is the Lord himself. In fact, this is so cool. Jesus uses, look, look up here. He uses the same root word for comfort in the Beatitudes as he's going to later use when he, d- he introduces the Holy Spirit of God. Those who trust Jesus have the comforter, the Spirit of God. This is how we are blessed. We are never, ever alone in our grief, ever That's part of what led the Apostle Paul to say this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Um, Read it with me. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, all together. You do not grieve as others do who have no hope. Amen. We grieve, but not as others do. We have comfort. David sang of the power of God's presence in his lament. Listen, Psalm 30, verse 11. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. I want to give you one more example. And this in, in my opinion, this is the most beautiful statement ever written in all human language. It's written by the prophet Habakkuk. He was rightfully lamenting the horrible state of this world, but God met Habakkuk there in his mourning and his complaining. And even though nothing circumstantially improved for Habakkuk, he learned that the presence of God makes all the difference. Read the underlined text of Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom... And there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He's made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Amen? 
All right, now read verse 5, the third beatitude. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness recognizes inheritance. Uh, That's the headline you'll see atop the right side of our notes, meekness recognizes inheritance. The word is fairly rare. This word's fairly rare in the Bible. It's it's one of those words that's really hard on our brilliant and dedicated friends who translate the Scripture. The word we render gentle or meek in Matthew 5, 5 is praise. Praise is really tough because in English, and this is wild because English is by far the most diverse language ever in human history, but in English, every word you translate praise just sounds too wimpy because praise is actually a word for power, but it's power expressed mildly. The, the, Aristotle tried to deal with this with, with praise, and, and so he used praise as part of his golden mean. If you don't know, Aristotle had an idea. It's not scripture, but it's an interesting idea that in almost all of life, there is a golden mean. There will be an extreme uh, idea or emotion to one side that's wrong. There'll be an extreme to the other side, and then there's a golden mean in the middle. So in describing this, Aristotle said there, the people are, and all of us are at some times, combative, pushy, demanding. That's unhealthy. At the other extreme, he said people are cowardly. They're, they're the opposite of that. In fact, they're so cowardly, they won't even stand up for what's right. Praise, he said, is the golden mean. That's the thing in the middle. That's the healthy. And by the way, he goes on to say in his ethics that the person who employs praise is successful. They're successful at managing their own lives, and they're prepared for leadership over others. In other words, they inherit the earth. Jesus is declaring that we, we who have all the promises and blessings of God, should express ourselves mildly. We don't run from a fight about truth and justice, but neither are we pugnacious. This was the impetus behind our forefathers when they were making up words like gentleman, gentlewoman. That's, that's praise. Um, think of it like a dog, okay? Gentle or meek in the Beatitudes can be understood in relation to a big dog. It is not a dog rolled over on her back in submission, nor is it a dog who is growling in anger. Praise is the dog whose fangs are hidden. She has power, but she expresses it in gentleness because we are in Jesus' kingdom, we can be praise, we can be gentle. And what allows us to be calmly confident is we know the end of the story. We inherit the earth. Now, Jesus' audience in Galilee would almost certainly have understood what he was saying to apply to the remnant of Israel who will possess the promised land of Israel under Messiah's rule. And And that's valid. But later in Matthew, Jesus makes clear what the minor prophets discuss at length. All persons, Jew or Gentile, All persons who trust God's grace offered through the Messiah are going to rule the entire earth as vice regents under Messiah's kingdom. True story. You will rule the earth. Personally, I have already put in a request to oversee Grindelwald, Switzerland uh, during the millennium. I especially am willing to volunteer as the thousand-year taste tester at the Lady Rock Chocolate Factory. But regardless of what area I get to serve as part of our inheritance, I can sheathe my fangs, I can be meek now, confident in a future where I know that everything will work out perfectly. How many of you have raised teenagers? Raise your hands, you've raised teenagers. Okay, you probably can then relate to a little video I want to show you. This was made by our drama team. This, this is fantastic. Look and listen. Mom, home. Hey, how was your day? How's practice? It was good. I'm really hungry right now. Can I go get a snack? Yeah, go ahead. But I'm going to make dinner here in just a little bit, so don't eat too much. All right. Okay. All right. 
10 minutes later. <gasps> oh! <laughs> wait, wait, here's the best part. What's dinner? I'm hungry. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. I showed that example of my own parenting life because of how we misapprehend the next beatitude. Read verse 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. Thirsting for righteousness is fulfilling. The refrigerator of God's holiness never runs empty. Remember, makarios, blessed, means something that is already part and parcel of our state of being. Therefore, Jesus is declaring that those who are poor in spirit enough to trust him can be satisfied. Unlike Mick Jagger, we can get satisfaction. And fascinatingly, the way to that satisfaction is through more hunger. Look at it. The more I hunger and thirst after holiness, the more I get to enjoy God's imputed holiness in me. It's, it's telling that Jesus uses an image of hunger and thirst because those are continuously part of everyone's life. And unlike food, our hunger for righteousness is always met. In fact, it's met more deeply the more we hunger and thirst. John describes the same truth in narrative form. Look up here. John chapter 6. Uh, what can we do to perform the works of God? These people asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Start at the beginning, know your poverty of spirit, believe on me, the Messiah, the one God has sent. Now, the context here is a bunch of hungry people have followed Jesus from where he performed a miracle all the way to Capernaum. And surely a number of these folks just have their hand out, wanting a handout. But some of them, some of them obviously are trying to be more holy. They're asking, how do we do the works of God? How can we be holy? Jesus says, start at the very beginning. Trust Messiah Jesus. This is the only work that can make you righteous. And then, get this, Jesus goes on to describe the fulfillment that comes from hungering and thirsting after the righteousness that only God can give. Verse 35 of that same passage, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy breeds mercy. Because Jesus' people have been shown mercy, they show mercy themselves. Suppose, suppose you're trying to back out of a parking space in a crowded parking lot. Um, hypothetically, suppose you're, you're at some church that has a slanted parking lot that is only like one-way flow. I know it's ridiculous. Just imagine that, okay? And you're desperately trying to back out, and, and somebody, some nice person, doesn't make you stay trapped. They could. They have the right of way, but they stop and they tell you to come on. They choose to be inconvenienced so you can back out. Okay, then as you go around this, this hypothetical church lot to the other side, you see a desperate break and reverse light and you realize that some poor dog is trying to bull his way out and get his van out and get to the restaurant and you see the van rocking. You hear that his kids are all, all six of his children are in there barking and, and laughing and yelling and singing songs. So what do you do? This poor guy needs to get to the restaurant. What do you do? You have the right of way. It is your choice. What do you do? Everybody tell me, what do you do? Do you let him out or not? Please say let him out. Okay. You show kindness to him because kindness was shown to you. Mercy begets mercy. Jesus told a parable about this. He said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Although Jesus used the much less stressful image of, of high debt. Uh, I'm kidding. But, um, but he emphasized that mercy should beget mercy. One year, our church's annual theme was this verse, Micah 6.8. He's told you, O oh man, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Kindness or mercy there, depending on your Bible, is the great, great Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is merciful, loving kindness. It is, it is a loyal love that cannot and will not be broken. It's the kind of love that stands with you, that corrects you when you need it, that is inconvenienced for you, for the other person. So how can God's people possibly become people of hesed? Well, by learning from God himself. He's the originator of hesed. We learn mercy. We give mercy because we get mercy from God. Look at Look at this. This is how Yahweh describes himself to Moses. Famous passage, Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's hesed and faithfulness. Hesed. We who know Yahweh have received his mercy. Thus we are naturally expected to show his hesed to others. All God's people said, in a similar fashion, purity arises from intimacy with God as well. Purity is very similar. That's the message of verse 8. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. In Jesus, we see God. Christians have Makarios, God's very spirit. You know, in a way, even more deep and more intimate than Moses' experience with God, when, when Moses was speaking directly with God, you and I have a more intimate, personal relationship with the triune God. Because of that, we can and should be pure in heart. Focus on the heart aspect of that blessing. In his, uh, in his studies on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the great British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, he wrote this. I like this so much I put it in your notes. He said in his wonderful London accent, the heart is the whole center of Jesus' teaching. We have to remind ourselves again that the Christian faith is ultimately not a matter of doctrine or understanding or of intellect. It is a condition of the heart. Let me add, hasten to add, that the doctrine is absolutely essential. The intellect apprehension is absolutely essential. Understanding is vital, but it is not only that. Close quote. Now, Lloyd-Jones in his book goes on to say, and this is pretty funny, he goes on to say every time he says that, we, he taught the Sermon on the Mount often, every time he would say that, there would be a bunch of people who would nod their heads and say, amen, amen. And he found over time that these were people who were very upset about what they saw as intellectual Christianity, and they wanted more action. They wanted preachers to talk about how you live, how you do. They didn't want the head, they wanted the hands. And he learned to say this to them as his very next statement. Be careful. Christianity is also not primarily a matter of conduct and external behavior. It's all about the heart. It's not your head. It's not your hands. It is purity of heart. In Hebrew thought, and, and Jesus' original audience were all Jews, the heart is the fount of a person. It is the center of personality, will, intellect. The heart is the total human. Pure of heart. Now, surely that brings up a song that you are singing in your Liesel imitation. I am 16 going on 17, and even I know the human heart is evil. Very good, Liesel. Thank you. You're right. God spoke that truth through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Things have been that way since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were kicked out. Let's listen to Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 7, look what he says to a group of leaders. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, so do you. 
Okay, given that entrenched situation, our hearts are deceitful above all else. It's always been that way. It continues in us. How can anyone become pure in heart? It seems impossible. Ah, but with God, all things are possible. You see, those who trust on Jesus are changed. We are justified before God. We are made pure in heaven through our identification with Jesus. And Christians can become, we really can become more holy even on earth as we live our lives out before people because intimacy with God purifies us. That's why Isaiah prophesied this. Read with me. Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verse 18. Come, let us discuss this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they will be like wool. Intimacy with God, discussing with God, that makes for purity of heart. Listen, if what's coming out of your heart, whether it's expressed through your hands or your head these days, if what's coming out of your heart is crimson, dedicate yourself to more discussions directly with God. Now, read verse 9. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. In our notes, we say shalom seekers are God's ambassadors. Those who trust Jesus are adopted into the family of God. We are legally recognized as God's kids. Get this, male or female, we have full inheritance, full inheritance as sons of God. That is so awesome. Now, what do sons do in, in, a, in a kingdom of this time period when this is written? What do sons do? They represent the kingdom. Paul's phrase is really wonderful. The apostle Paul says, we are ambassadors for God. So every one of us who knows Jesus is an ambassador. What does an ambassador do? They're diplomats. They, they seek shalom. They seek peace. We are peacemakers. Now, please don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean we avoid conflict. How could you seek after righteousness, what we just read earlier, if you avoid conflict? Have you ever done anything good or tried to do anything noble in the world? Have you? If so, you have learned that it inevitably leads to conflict. There is always conflict. And of course, that provokes the Captain Von Trapp question in your mind. Well, what then does peacemaking mean? Great question, Captain. Thank you for asking. Dr. Bailey describes the answer. Look up here. Peacemakers are different from peacekeepers or pacifists. Peacemakers work for healed relationships on all levels. Close quote. My pulpit team member, Martin McDonald, added this great insight. He wrote me this week and said, Wayne, God's peace seems to be directed at our hearts, granting stillness, faith, courage, and hope in the midst of conflict. Well, what then is a Christian peacemaker? One who helps others find stillness, faith, courage, and hope, even in the midst of conflict. Close quote. Let me give you a great illustration. This is from my old boss, Dan Bolin, a letter that he wrote this week. He said, on January 8th, 1956, 63 years ago today, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Yadarin were killed on a sandbar in the Karari River of Ecuador by Haorani warriors. Dan says, as a child, I wondered about that event, and I puzzled over God's promise from Philippians chapter 4. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches. Well, why had God abandoned these five missionaries when they needed him most? He didn't supply guns for protection. He didn't provide a helicopter for escape. He didn't provide a thunderstorm to frighten away the attackers. Dan says, over the years, I've come to realize that God provided them with exactly what they needed. 
God gave them the gracious peace to die martyrs' deaths. Ambassadors. That event is credited with sparking the modern mission movement. I just want to interject something here. I have been very blessed to meet with many, many, many missionaries who've done incredible work around the world, all of whom made the decision to go into missions because of that event. And as God's ambassadors, that tribe, the Warani who, who killed those five missionaries, almost every member of that tribe, not just that particular clan, but through the entire tribe, became believers in Jesus Christ through that event. My children, one of the blessed events of their life was when I was teaching in Amsterdam and, uh, and one Minkeye, the leader of that tribe, the one who killed two of the guys, he sat and had dinner with my children and I and talked about what it meant to meet a real ambassador for God. And it was just, and by the way, he had a great sense of humor. Very, very funny guy. Great guy. Uh, by the way, Nate Saint that was killed, his son Steve was the one that translated for us over dinner. How about that? All right, back to Dan's note. It, changed, it challenged millions of Christians to pray. It inspired thousands of young missionaries to go overseas. And it unleashed hundreds of millions of dollars for world missions. Now listen to this. We think we need prosperity, safety, and success. But what those five needed in 1956 was God's gracious peace, enabling them to do what he called them to do. And that is what we need today. Close quote. How does one enjoy and share that peace? By remembering that we are God's ambassadors. Now, I know... I know what you're almost certainly thinking now. In your nasty Nazi Herr Zeller voice from The Sound of Music, you're saying, is it all sunshine and roses? Is this Christian life all happiness then? Thank you for asking. The answer is nine. Look what Jesus covers next. The persecution of the new life is what he covers next. Go to verse 10. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Because we are part of the kingdom of heaven, we will be persecuted for goodness. It is actually true that no good deed on this earth will go unpunished. Part of our makarios, part of our blessing, is persecution. I know that sounds ridiculous, but actually it is an honor. I remember one day my dad was changing a diaper on one of the grandkids. Uh, I walked in the room and it was a real stinker. And, uh, and I, I saw how bad the diaper was and I said, oh, pa, oh, good heavens, here, let, let me do that. You don't need to do that. And my father looked at me and he said, no, sir, it is an honor to change messy diapers because it is part and parcel of having incredible grandbabies, Right? When we are persecuted because of Jesus' name, it means that Jesus' ethic, his ethos, is obvious in one's living. It, it means that we have been recognized as members of our incredible family. Persecution is just the stinky diaper that goes along with that. Now, no one, no one should masochistically seek persecution. Scripture's clear on that. But the Christian will be insulted, abused, harassed, and the accusations must be false Notice Jesus delineates, they say falsely against you. I have noted this before. If you're being bullied just because you're a jerk, that is not persecution. That's just comeuppance, all right? 
There is no reward in that. The Makarios is being harassed for our kingdom ethic, for following Jesus. If, if your oppression is because of your politics or your taste or your race, those can be terrible. But that's not what's being discussed here. This is about Jesus. The very structure, this is awesome. Look, look, verses 11 and 12 expose this. Did I get this chiasm in your notes? Did I? Okay, I did. All right, there, there's an inverted parallel here, a chiasm that I want you to see. Take a look. You are blessed, verse 11, when they insult. And then that's paralleled at the end of verse 12. That's how they persecuted the prophets before you. Come in a step, and we've got two negative statements. Persecute you, say falsely evil. That's paralleled by two positive statements. Be glad and rejoice because your word's great in heaven. And then in the very middle, the most important part of this kind of construction, the very middle is because of me. Do you see that? And, and our Makarios, opening line, our Makarios is that our blessing is that our insults that we receive parallel the prophet's persecution. What an honor. We share a state of blessed being with them. Two negative statements offset by two positives in the very middle, Jesus. Of course, the ultimate expression of Jesus' beatitude in verse 10 is seen in martyrdom. We heard earlier from Stephen, the very first martyr. Stephen has been joined by many, many, many brethren in the last 2,000 years. Let's just look at the last 100 years. Okay, do you know this? In the century plus since World War I, millions of Christians have been killed. Let me just, let's just take five countries, just five countries. Armenia, Russia, China, Sudan, and Iran. Tens of millions of people were murdered in those countries in the last 100 years by governments, this was not by individuals, by governments that were jealous of the blessings, the makarios that was held by those people because they were citizens of heaven. And by the way, even when you don't face death, if death isn't utilized, Christians are still marginalized as they live out their heavenly citizenship, which is what makes verse 12 so important. Go back to verse 12. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It is rewarded greatly in heaven. I love the past, present, and future aspects here. The, the old prophets are our brothers in arms. Our current blessings are real. The eternal rewards in the heavenly kingdom are great. Thus, the, the holiness that is the core of Jesus' ethic is worthy of pursuit. Look, look at it. No, no matter what the world throws at us, we are in the midst of a long line that leads to awesome rewards in eternity. We can be disciplined then to live out our authentic spirituality, to enjoy our makarios. We can be glad and rejoice no matter what comes our way. We've got to remember, every day, start at the beginning with the humble recognition of our poverty, our poor in spirit. And then we can rejoice at all the rich makarios that is granted us in Christ. We can even be disciplined about our hunger and thirst for holiness. We can pursue it. Let's give the last word to the abbess. We can climb every mountain. Right? All God's people said? Amen. Pray with me. Father... I pray that my brothers and sisters and I will climb every mountain. We will ford every stream to grow in this authentic spirituality that you have bestowed in our lives. We pray you will accomplish that in us and that we will partner with you in it. Father, we pray for all the aspects of our day, for the offering that we're about to take as I see ushers coming forward. Let us give robustly, joyfully. We know it's important, and this is part of how we we get to live out our spirituality, and it's an honor. I pray we'll give joyfully. I pray that about everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.